when you're afraid of the bank, check out the Federal Reserve's stress test on said bank. If you're not afraid of an insurance product and you are afraid of a bank, you should be afraid of the insurance product enough to do your due diligence. Anytime you get into any risky situation, being afraid of that risk is important. Rationally afraid of it, if that makes any sense. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Ah, uh, yes. We are back to uh, um, degrace you with our presence. And Jeff is on a cell phone, so he may sound a little weird. And if he's not on a cell phone, well, he sounds weird, then we should just say that we sound weird. That's probably true. That's probably true. Yes. We can blame it on the cell phones, but when you meet us in person and we blame it on the cell phone, it's a little bit weird. It's disappointing because we're just weird all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Or or either that or, or reaffirming to your faith in humanity that we are who we are on the radio, even when we're not on the radio. It's weird. I know. We didn't take on a different persona to do this program. Well, a different persona than you, just my persona. It's not different here. Uh, there's, a, there's a good argument there against pure free enterprise, against which, which a lot of people would love to see. Uh, and that is that the reason that loans were being given to people who couldn't pay them on houses that were phenomenally overpriced before the loan was made is because somebody would buy them from the person who made the loan right. and pay them well for them. Why would they buy them and pay them well for them? Because they figured out how to package them in such a way that the people buying the packages didn't realize that they were buying a load of garbage and were paying for it, Yeah, which is where the advantage of having good regulation particularly at the federal level, and that's about the only way it works in the United States, on such things is so important. And that's the same thing that happened with crypto, uh, or is happening with crypto. I don't know when it will be over with. It's it's getting worse. There's no regulation, so (laughs) the the smart people sell garbage to the foolish people and pocket the money and walk away, and and the foolish people go broke. Yeah, a lot of times those same smart people have been drinking their own Kool-Aid and they believe that, totally believe that what they're doing is safe for all and everybody can make money doing it. Uh, And that's the issue is that when you, there's, there's incest that occurs when you use the same thing as collateral on lots of different loans. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing in any way you look at it. Um we have some concerns right now on the horizon for pretty institutional type companies that aren't falling off the edge of the weirdo spectrum like newly created crypto exchanges that were worth many many billions of dollars overnight that's on the weirdness spectrum those are things that you can immediately say hey there's a problem there's some other stuff that we look up when a rising interest rate environment we believe we should start to be a little leery and careful around insurance companies because their portfolios that are driving pensions and annuity payments are based in large part on 
bond portfolios, and bond portfolios really don't do well in a rising interest rate environment. But they don't have to report those portfolios to anyone. They don't have to say this is what's happened and the value of the portfolio has dropped or that. Except if it's a pension company, they may be required to put in a little extra money when, when interest rates are down. Well, interest rates are up, so they're required to put less money in there. It's a bad situation and one that we're aware of. The fixed pension is about to go through some scandals. I mean, people have said, hey, and this, is, this is the writing on the wall, just as a side note. When Congress starts to say, we need to include in your 401k annuity payments, we need to include in your 401k the concept of a pension, it's because the majority of people believe it's safe. And when the majority of people believe that something that's paying you more than the bank does is safe, that's when the problems tend to occur. Why Why is that? Well, if it's paying more than the bank, then it's not as safe as the bank, or they wouldn't have to pay you more than the bank. That's just the reality of the world. If you don't have to pay someone more for something, if they say, oh, no, you don't have to pay me more, then why would you? And if an insurance company is going to pay you more than the bank does, they have a guarantee and the bank has a guarantee. So why are they paying more? Because their guarantee is much more limited than the bank's guarantees. And when the majority of people believe that both guarantees are the same and you see flows of money leaving the really safe lower interest to go to the not as safe higher interest, this is what we've been talking about, about crypto and about the mortgage-backed security market of 2006, is that when you're packaging something and everyone agrees that it's safe, but it's a paying a higher interest rate than a safe thing would, it's not safe. That's just the reality. You can't get by that. I mean, I can show you all kinds of complicated graphs and diagrams about how you can pull apart uh, the credit rating of a mortgage-backed security and see what tranches are being combined in there. But it really comes back to a very common sense concept. It's paying a really high interest rate and claiming to be really safe. Those two things don't go together. That's like a politician that doesn't lie. No, this is, this is, Jimmy Stewart passed away, so Mr. Smith is not in Congress right now. Uh, this, this, there are no maybes about this. High interest rates don't go with safe things. And in an institutional world where everyone's agreeing that these things are safe because it's just been so long since they failed, but they're starting to do the things that they did way back when before they did fail, that's when we start waving our hands around. That isn't to say get out of all your insurance stuff or any of that. It's do some research and look into what you're doing. Don't stop at the word guarantee move beyond it and research what that means. It's important, very important, especially if you have a large amount of your, of your income potential into your golden years wrapped up in this stuff. So just be aware of that. We see that as a threat on the horizon. I know a lot of people are worried about banks right now. I've had a lot of people worried about banks to me. And this is a natural part of any economic cycle, we're really, really concerned and worried about the thing that bit us last time. Even if the thing that bit us last time has a muzzle on and is in the kennel and is going through 
training. We're still worried about that. That's generally not the thing that's going to bite us this time. The banks have been stress tested consistently yearly at their great moaning and complaining by the Federal Reserve again and again at a higher level of stress than what we saw in the global financial crisis, and they've passed it all. I mean, all of the major banks have passed the stress test. So we're not worried about the banking system. That's the thing that got us last time. You need to look up and say, all right, what are the other bad practices that are echoing what the banks did before they fell apart? Well, crypto just did it. We've been telling you about that for a while, and so have a lot of other people. I can't, we can't take credit for being the only voices out there saying crypto is dangerous, but we've been consistent about it. We didn't waffle around at any point and say, no, maybe you could do it. Nope. We said, if you're going to make money in crypto, sell or rent them the computer to mine with. Don't go mining. <laughs> and we've had people that have done well doing that. They're not making much money today though, because the mining is down. So all of that is a lot. Uh, there, those are things that when you're afraid of the bank, check out the Federal Reserve's stress test on said bank. If you're not afraid of an insurance product and you are afraid of a bank, you should be afraid of the insurance product enough to do your due diligence. Anytime you get into any risky situation, being afraid of that risk is important. Rationally afraid of it, if that makes any sense. You, you, what you said is, is, is completely correct to a point. You can check out the insurance company all you want to. And this is one of my soapbox items for years now, but I'm, I'm going to stay on it. Historically, when we enter into a period of rising interest rates, life insurance companies, and when I say life insurance companies, that's who issues annuities, have a tendency to fail. Now, which one's going to fail? Here's the problem. I, I can tell you which ones. It'll be the ones which, that do. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's very accurate prediction right there. Write it in your you book. You can go... You can go to AM Best or Standard & Poor's or something and see that it's given a very, very high rating. But if you read the fine print on those ratings, it's based on the portfolio they hold at this moment and the demand that's on them at this moment. And let me give you an interesting scenario. Interest rates continue to rise. The bank is offering higher interest rates on CDs. The money market funds are offering higher interest rates. And you bought sometime in the past, let's say a 35 or 4% deferred annuity from an insurance company where they promised to pay you three and a half or 4% as long as you left the money there. And in many cases, there's a seven-year surrender charge on those because they have very, very large commissions and very large surrender charges. But at some point, and by the way, this is what happened in the late 70s and early 80s, people looked around and said, look at there, I can go to a secure place, a, a government bond, a bank account uh, with FDIC insurance or something and get a higher interest rate than I'm getting from my insurance company's annuity that I, that I purchased. And uh, it's, it's a single premium deferred annuity, they're called, where they, are guaranteed, they say, I'll give you this much interest. And you take the money out of the insurance company and you put it in the bank. Well, that's a perfectly rational thing to do. And a lot of people did that in the late 70s and, and as the 1980s began. The problem was because interest rates had been rising during that time period, the portfolios held by the insurance companies, the bonds were worth less than their maturity value. They were worth less than they paid for them. So in order to supply the cash to the people who were liquidating the fixed deferred annuities, they had to sell bonds at a loss. And then they started buying junk bonds. 
And the regulators in the various states kind of went along went along with that because junk bonds hadn't failed in a long time, and everybody knew that that bonds were secure. And they started buying what later were called junk bonds. They're called high yield now, and they were called high yield back then. And the regulators kind of let it went along with it, and the rating agencies kind of went along with it, and gave, still gave them high ratings. And then we found out that the high yield bond market was in a bubble. Many of you don't remember the name Michael Milliken, but basically he had figured out how to manipulate that market in such a way that he turned gold into junk. And the end result was quite a number of major insurance companies failed. Now, what happens when an insurance company fails and you have an annuity there? Or there's theoretically or maybe or may not be a state guarantee fund that may cover some or all of what you have in there, but in some cases doesn't cover any. Otherwise, you're an unsecured creditor of the insurance company. That's all there is to it. And when I read about today, the fact that fixed annuities uh, are now authorized to go into fixed deferred annuities, single premium deferred annuities are now authorized inside 401ks. I am just kind of mind boggled because the purpose, the main purpose in using an annuity is to to defer taxes. The main purpose in a 401k is to defer taxes. So if you put a tax deferral inside a tax deferral, all you're getting is higher expenses. I don't know that this is going to happen again. I do know that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And the last time we saw a serious interest rate rise like we're seeing right now, was followed a few years later by a lot of insurance companies failing and a lot of people who had money in those insurance companies being very, very unhappy, some of whom I personally witnessed come in to see me after, and all they were getting back is 30 cents on the dollar of what they had invested. So just that's just bear that in mind. There is no such thing as a risk-free situation. And the insurance companies with their guarantee, the only real guarantee that you have if you get a guarantee from an insurance company is the guarantee of that insurance company, nothing more. There's no FDIC to back them up. There's no federal government to back them up. There's nothing to back them up except the insurance company. And if they fail, you are an unsecured creditor. Just be aware of that. It's reality. Well said. We're sitting here in a strange time. That, that's putting it lightly. That is an understatement. Uh, when parts of what we're experiencing right now are absolutely textbook. I mean, they are more textbook that I'm ex- than I've ever experienced in my career. I can look back at history and see it looking like this at lots of times, like the inventory buildup and the bullwhip effect of the supply chains moving up and down. It's very textbook, and these are things that have caused recessions in the past. But we still have some component of that just-in-time delivery stuff happening. Which, what, what is it about inventory buildup that has caused recessions in the past? This is like the most, the most traditional form of recession is as, an, as, as a manufacturer, you're getting orders, so you're you're selling to someone and they need to order enough in advance that they have enough on hand to sell their customers and their customers come in and they say, Hey, we want to buy that. And so they order more of it and they see this is their best selling item. So they order even more from the manufacturer. They say, we're going to order an extra, extra, extra amount. And they fill up the warehouse with it right as whatever was causing that item to be in demand goes away. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter if it's because the cabbage patch fad, cabbage patch kid fad is gone, 
or the Beanie Babies are just not as popular as they were. If you wind up with a whole bunch of Beanie Babies in your warehouse that aren't being bought anymore, eventually you have to sell them for less than you paid for them. And that's moving backwards. That's what recession means. Your profits not only declined, you may have lost money. You have receded from your top. And and when you imagine that across the entire spectrum of everybody buying and selling at the at the manufacturing level all the way down to the ultimate retail sales location, that was the most normal way of getting into a recession. Inventory buildup followed by we got to sell it for less than we bought it for. We had something that took place late in the 1990s into the early 21st century. The internet popped in. People like Michael Dell stepped forward and said, I'm not going to have a warehouse at all. I'm going to build this computer after somebody tells me what they want. So I'll buy the parts after they give me the money for the whole machine. I don't have to store anything. So that model took off. McLean's right there in Temple, Texas, founded by Drayton McLean, came up with a logistical, and their, their, their business model was all based on how do we get products to grocery stores quickly. So they developed a technology that we look at and it's ubiquitous now, the barcode. You scan the thing and the computer's already ordering what you just bought to be replaced in the store. And the more you do that, the less you need a warehouse. So that model of just-in-time delivery took off. Then we went through the beginning of the 21st century into the global financial crisis with really no big issues recession-wise. We had the dot-com bust because the potential was there for this just-in-time stuff, and we overdid it. We got greedy, and we had a dot-com bust. And then the global financial crisis hit, which pushed us harder into the just-in-time delivery system. The businesses out there said, we have to do this more we have to do more with less. And that was a repeated frame, refrain again and again throughout that era. How do we increase our productivity? We can't afford as many employees as we had. So from that point to the pandemic's recession in 2020, we went 12 years without a recession. That's weird. There's no other time in the history of the United States that we've gone that long without a recession, ever. It's just, there's not a time. It was... What happened there? Well, we changed our entire model of how we do business right at the same time period that free trade was really taking off. And then toward the end of this, we started a trade war. Then the pandemic hit. Those two things together have really messed up all that those decades-long plans of how we don't have to have warehouses. So warehouse space became very limited during the pandemic. Big companies were buying warehouses. Amazon was building them. They're now scrapping the warehouse projects because the supply chain's coming back in a better way with more redundancies and a shorter chain and you don't have to reach all the way across the globe every time to get everything. So they're now scrapping warehouse projects, which means they're laying people off in construction that were being hired to do warehouses. Well, they still could have built the warehouses, but the interest rates on those things just went up and they didn't want to buy it with cash. So this is the deal, is that money's been spent on things and got scrapped. That's why Amazon's laying people off right now. Uh, and, and you can see it across the tech world. They got ahead of themselves. Well, this is a normal thing in, in, the, in the cycle. Are we going to have a recession because of it? Probably not because of this, but it could be a component if we do. <laughs> you have something to add. Yeah, I want to throw something in here that 
is kind of semi, it could be construed as political. It's not. Um, and that is the Congressional Budget Office issued an issued an estimate of the X date. The X date is the time when the United States Treasury will actually run out of money. Now, we're technically using extraordinary measures of the government taking from Peter to pay Paul and whatever. They, they basically have stopped funding pensions for federal employees so that they can use the money to pay the bills. And not just stopped funding the pensions. They're also the G fund and the TSP is kind of a slush fund. They can take the money out of that and use it for a while. Yeah. And, and the, the issue is when it all depends on how much money comes in with the, when April 15th rolls around and how much money has been paid on taxes and how much is deferred. So we, there's a question. It, it could happen as early as June, could happen as late as August, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Now, here's, here's the problem with this. There are some people in Congress who are quite serious about not raising the debt ceiling without some dramatic changes somewhere in spending. And they've been very vague other than there has been some mention of cutting Social Security and cutting Medicare. I don't think it's going to happen. There's been some mention of cutting defense. Those are the only three areas that you can cut significantly that'll make a difference in the deficit. So the issue is the threat of not raising the debt ceiling. What's What happens if they don't raise the debt ceiling? What happens if we go to the wall and in 2011, we were literally an hour or two away from the United States defaulting. And at one point, as a matter of fact, there was a month or the, the two week pay cycle when uh, military personnel did not get a paycheck till late because of that event. Now, here's the problem with that. If indeed we go down to the wire and cross it in this game of let's not raise the debt ceiling to pay for bills that we here in Congress have already voted into existence. We've already we've already said, by law, Treasury, you have to spend the money. It may have been different congressmen who did it, but the congressman, the Congress of the United States said, you got to spend the money, and then saying, no, we're not going to pay the bill. That's what not raising the debt ceiling is. The problem with that is it would instantly cause the interest rate on the federal debt to jump significantly. Let me say that again. It's like if you don't make a, you decide not to make your credit card payments or your car payments or whatever, what happens to money that you borrow into the future? What happens to the interest rates? It goes up dramatically because you're no longer a good credit risk. If that happens, if indeed the members of Congress of the House of Representatives who want to cut spending, push it down to the wire or pass the wire and say, we're not raising the debt ceiling. And the United States stops paying its bills at that point. The last time this happened, Standard & Poor's lowered the United States credit rating from AAA to AA and interest rates, long-term interest rates went up dramatically and it had a significant effect a couple of years on. That could by itself trigger a major recession that would do two things simultaneously, raise long-term interest rates dramatically and cut revenue to the United States government dramatically and thereby dramatically increase the debt. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about that. It's complex. It is difficult. And I just want to say there's no question in my mind at all. The answer to overspending is not going on strike and not paying your credit card and your house payment and your car payment. The answer to overspending is when the spending bill comes up to have the votes to lower it. And if you don't have a majority to lower the spending, then it isn't going to happen. 
because you're a minority and 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 using some method that the minority has to keep us from paying the bills as a threat is just it 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 isn't a matter I mean, not even it's not a moral issue although that's there too the issue is it will dramatically increase the deficit it will dramatically increase the money that the united that that has to go to pay debt if they do this and there are some people in Congress who are determined to do it. And let me just say, to, to put this in as clear a possible way as we can, this is not a simple thing to figure out the budget. In 2022, we only have estimates of the receipts for the federal government. This is taxes and tariffs and fees and everything else coming into the federal government. The estimate is $4.436 trillion dollars. We'll just round that to 4.4 for, for reasonable purposes. Well, what did we spend in 2022? Well, we have different places of looking at that and different ways of measuring it. How is that? Well, if we, if we look at what we spent, so remember the 4.4 number. Medicare cost us $1.5 last year. Social Security cost us $1.3. National Defense cost us $1.2. Health, that includes Medicare and was 1.1. And income security, those are pensions and so on for uh, the government employees, but also shoring up pension funds for private companies. So if you add all that together, you're up at the $5.2 trillion. And that's just Social Security, Medicare, National Defense, Health and Income. This isn't the stuff, this isn't foreign benefits, this isn't the highway department, this isn't interest on the debt. Interest on the debt, as a side note, was $736 billion last year. Um, if you start adding that all up, you realize that we're spending just on the things that nobody wants to cut. We're spending more than we make. Do we still want to have a national defense? Because if we don't pay our bills by not raising the debt ceiling, then we're not going to pay Boeing for the new jets and we're not going to pay BAE for the new Bradleys and we're not going to buy any more helicopters because they're not going to give it to us for free. So just the stuff that even the Republicans do not want to cut are more than the tax revenue. Either raise the taxes or we have to keep borrowing or we have to cut the things that nobody wants to cut. This is not simple. There's, you don't hear me making suggestions here because you can step on toes really easy, talk about cutting Medicare and somebody's gonna come at me with a knife. Social security, yeah, I might get drive-by shootings. National defense, this is, it may be rockets. <laughs> so all of those are important things. We don't want people that are elderly in the United States to starve. We don't want their medical bills to be so great that they can't pay them. Medicare and Social Security is paying out far more than they ever collected. But this was an obligation we put on ourselves. We got to pay for it or we have to cut it. Do you want to be the one that tells grandma she can't go get her surgery? That, that's that's where we are right now. And there there's hard hard decisions that have to be made at a time when the polarization about stupid things is taking up 100% of our time. It isn't talking about how do we fix Social Security? How do we fix Medicare? Nope, not on the, not on the table for discussion at the moment. We're just going to talk about whether or not we should pay the debt. <laughs> That's silly. And I and it sounds political because right now it's the Republicans that are making the fuss. But if you'll recall, we 
make the same commentary when it's the Democrats that are choosing. I mean, it's not like the Democrats are being smart about it now either. Just the Republicans are being loudest about it. Uh, and I realize because it's a team sport politics that people get offended if you talk bad about the team. But the reality is that we're looking at the sport in general, not the way the game is played. The game is played as being messy right now. The sport needs work. The rules of the sport need work. We need to figure out how to pay debts. We need to figure out how to um, not go into free fall because people don't want to pay for things that we've already spent. You know, what can't be undone, and I, I wouldn't undo it if I could, are the stimulus packages, all of them. Mm -hmm. I think there were two passed by the Republicans and one passed by the Democrats. Uh, and, and that's debt we have to pay. We said it at the time. Right. And, and the, the issue is you can't undo that. You can't claw that money back. Well, I guess you could, you could, that's what taxes are. To, you would raise taxes. To, well, to you, do that. You, you, you could go, Congress could pass a law that says, guess whatever you received as a stimulus check, you have to pay it back. Uh, I don't think that would go over real well. Yeah. We want you but, to forgive our forgiven loan to you by forgiving it back to us, by giving it just to us. Thank you. Right. And I've never heard anybody say they want to do that. But the bottom line to it is, yes, we've run up a huge debt. There's two ways to solve that. We either cut one of the things or several of the things that Jake just mentioned, or we raise taxes. The biggest single, and, I'm, and this is just my conclusion after looking at it, we had a major tax cut just before the pandemic hit. Maybe a lot of you don't remember it. The Tax Reduction Act. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We had a major tax reduction just before we spent a tremendous amount of money. And now we have a big debt. Well, excuse me, but duh. Go back to, I won't even say who did it. Go back to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act equivalent look look to you you do your research who was it that cut the revenue and the theory the the stated objective was to raise revenue by cutting taxes in fact the congressional budget office and everybody else who's looked at it said we managed to reduce revenue by cutting taxes which makes tremendous common sense uh and this is something we talked about at the time when when you raise but, taxes and revenue goes up and then you lower taxes you shouldn't expect revenue to go up again. I am hearing, reading messages from members of Congress or one member or my member of Congress who dramatically supported the Tax Cuts Act, the Tax Cut and Job, Tax Reduction and no, Jobs Act. No. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Yeah. Now being vocal in support of the fact that we should we should, and also, by the way, supported the stimulus bills that the, that the Republicans passed at the time. He's a Republican. Now saying he doesn't think we should raise the debt ceiling and thereby pay the debts that we've incurred. Uh, he's not going to like it if he hears that I said this, but he doesn't like me particularly right now anyway. He used to be on our show, but folks, that's irresponsible. Yeah. We got to pay our debts. This, this is something we believe to be fundamentally important to any economy is the value of your word. That is what a bond means. It means a promise. If we don't pay our promises, we are liars and we are letting the politicians determine that for us. Yikes. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. McClure. 
Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.